This is right now, and I'm not Stephen Kent. I'm Andrew Heaton. Listen, nobody is happy about this development. You wish I was Stephen Kent. I also wish I was Stephen Kent. We're all on the same page. But don't panic. While I have indeed affected a hostile, some would even say excessively violent, takeover of right now, my very first guest is none other than Mr. Stephen Gettysburg Kent. We're going to discuss his new book, How the Force Can Fix the World. Hey, before we dive into that hot tub of sizzling journalistic gotcha questions, did you know that this very channel, the channel you are watching right now, has over 20,000 smart, attractive subscribers, and you can join them. I am formally inviting you to. As you probably know, I am a beloved three-time guest on Right Now. So mathematically, I account for about a third of those subscribers. If we can double that number by the end of today, Stephen's producer says I can take home all the excess donuts I want from the break room, plus condiments. So let's do this, gang. Stephen, hello. Welcome to my show. You scruffy-looking nerf herder. You stole the show from me. Th uh, they're th gonna, they're gonna give it to you permanently. That was, that was. <laughs> I thought, how my whole life plan was make friends with Stephen Kent, wait till he writes a book about Star Wars, and then sneak into the show through doing that. Stage a coup. Yes, stage a coup. Although I am delighted to talk to you about Star Wars. If if uh, if there was a topic that I would love to talk to Stephen Kent about, it is about Star Wars. We've been doing it together for years. We've done, well, you've you've got the podcast, the, yeah. the Beltway Banthas, that's wonderful, and you've come on my my sci-fi podcast. We've mm -hmm. talked about it, and then you finally wrote How the Force Can Fix the World. So, uh, first question to you: Is this a template for you as a person? Is it a template for society? Is it dad advice? Is it all of the above? It's all dad advice. Yeah. It's all dad advice. Yeah, I mean, no, so it's it's a book that I, I say is like one-third political science, one-third self-help, and then one-third diving really deep into Star Wars lore, and I, I don't really know what the other, you know, one percent is. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like taking, you know, the whole question of why we're polarized as a society, why everything seems to be overly politicized, mm -hmm. divisive, and then looking at Star Wars as a text which offers you pretty darn actionable advice on how you can live better, how you can resist falling into a life of darkness, and then spread that with people, whether it's learning to let go, do or do not, there is no try, keep your mind here and now where it belongs. Like Star Wars is just littered with dad advice. Uh -huh. And so I kind of like to think of it as something that blends all those things. Okay, great. Now, back where this was your show, you would probably make an effort to enfranchise everybody watching regardless of their Star Wars Back knowledge. in the old Republic days. I don't care about any of your listeners and, and viewers <laughs> that don't understand Star Wars. So we're, I'm only pitching to the base right now of people that understand Star Wars. So you, you brought up that we're living in a very polarized uh, political environment. Um, you talk in the book about pluralism and you talk about uh, dualism, but it seems to me that the Star Wars universe is an extremely dualistic universe. It's, it's the, the, the good side versus the dark side. So it seems to me that it would confer binary thinking, um, but, but you do not draw that conclusion. Why? Well, I think binary thinking in Star Wars is what renders the galaxy subject to war after war after war. I mean, the Star Wars are mostly the result of order, 
and chaos being in constant battle for control. There's never balance in Star Wars. That's why there are so many wars. The Sith and the Jedi both have these incredibly dogmatic religions surrounding how you use the Force. Either it is only for service, serenity, logic and reason if you're a Jedi, or it is about self-gratification, fulfillment, emotion above all else if you are a Sith. Uh-huh. And then there's this prophecy, right, of a, a one who's going to bring balance to the force. And it's up for debate on who actually ends up doing that, if anybody. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, it's the Jedi and the Sith, like, their philosophies lend to constant conflict because there is no ability to split the two and do it right. So, so then is it the Jedi then are not necessarily the template for how we should work, but rather it's a, the whole thing is a macro morality tale? of this kind of dualistic thing? No, absolutely. I mean, the Jedi go extinct virtually because they were flawed. You know, they had this sort of, I don't know how you would say it, just this entire view of how the Force should be practiced. Um, You know, that they blocked out, for example, like romantic love from their doctrine. And it's for good reason, right? So you, you talk you know, about the the ethics of attachment. The Dalai Lama will tell you all day you need to learn to let go right. of your attachments. And I, I, I dated a queen for a while. And I'm, I sure you, I'm sure you did. Just a bunch of people died as a result of that errant romance. I wish we had Scottish a queens. Yes, yes, it was exactly that. Yeah. No, it's like, but the, the virtue is, is correct. Like attachment breeds jealousy. That's what Yoda right. says to Anakin when he's talking about being attached to something as well. And it does breed negative feelings. You know, people get in that way and romance romantic love situations all the time. You get that way about your children, right? You know, you love your kids and you become deeply attached to them and their security. And then you find yourself doing kind of bizarre things to keep them safe. Uh, You know, like being a helicopter parent or tracking them when they're walking around the neighborhood via their phones. Being attached causes us to be control freaks about things. And one of the things that I touch on in this book is that the reason the Sith and the Jedi are in constant conflict is because neither one knows how to love properly. The Jedi don't have a healthy relationship to this emotion. And of course, the Sith don't either because they're just all about them, 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 accumulation and narcissism. Gosh, I'm, I'm glad I read it then because I also don't know how to love. And if I could <laughs> learn how to love through you talking about Star Wars, all the better for it. You know, I'll, I'll say one of the things that I had not anticipated about your book that I very much enjoyed was it has a theological bent to it. I I thought it was going to be politics and sci-fi, but it's kind of politics, sci-fi, self-help, and religion. And uh, you you get into a fair amount of uh, Christian theologians, but you also get into Eastern religion there too. And talking about attachment, um, that is a huge part of Buddhism. You you cited the Dalai Lama and, and that idea that you can't control the amount of pain in your life, but you can control your response to it. And you can control how, uh, how much suffering you have as a result of, of gripping something. No, absolutely. And I think whether you're talking about Buddhism or you're talking about Greek Stoicism, there's this general idea that there are always going to be things in the universe that are happening to you, that make you unhappy, that put you through pain and suffering. It's your choice, however, one, how you deal with those things and whether or not you spend every waking hour of the night staring up at the ceiling about things you cannot control at all and then you sacrifice the things that you could control. So in the beginning of like episode one, uh, you know, there's a disturbance in the force that Obi-Wan feels and Qui-Gon tells his Padawan, you need to keep your mind here and now where it belongs. There's this idea that there is no future 
and there is no past. The past is something that's already been done. The future does not yet exist. The only thing that matters is in the present. That's pretty central to Jedi theology. Um, this matters a lot, I think, when you just look at the chaos in the world, whether it be China on the rise and the idea that one day there could be World War III. You know, are you going to be stressed out about that or are you going to just try to be a better neighbor, a better wife or husband, a better parent? Uh, and focus on the thing that you do have control over? Or are you going to go out into the world and be worried about getting sick from COVID-19 when really there are not many things that we can do to control whether or not we come into contact with microorganisms that make us sick? Um, you know, masking obviously can help, I guess, sometimes. But that's the general idea you need to let go. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always trying to become a better wife or husband in my life. And, and so uh, and I'm hopeful <laughs> that I can pull that off. An old maid. An old maid. Um, so I, I want to backtrack a little bit because I'm a couple of the concepts in the book that, that I, I've been thinking about are, are redemption and duality. And so mm. talking about duality, and I think this funnels into our current <clears throat> political climate, let's say theoretically you are a mediator between the Sith and the Jedi. What would you tell the two sides about the other one to try and resolve conflict? Oh, that's, that's a great question that I don't have a wonderful answer to. <laughs> I I think it... it I mentioned it earlier, like about love, right? And about what makes people feel fulfilled. There is this culture that I think we are dealing with right now, particularly in the West, let's say the United States. Where I live. Every, yeah, and where you are living uh -huh. right now. It is a republic of feelings. Everything in our society, on the internet, on Twitter, and it's seeping out into our politics, even into the halls of Congress, Everything in politics is about people's feelings, whether or not they perceive and feel threat, whether or not they are unhappy or feel that they've been microaggressed against. There is not much space right now for two things, logic and reason and slow thinking, reasoned thinking, uh, and then also just trying to will the goodwill of others, right? Twitter plays right into this, where we make gut reactions to everything. We are washed over with negative trending topics every single day, every single minute this is what the model is for. And the incentive is for us to be angry, to demonize our opponents, to put masks on them so that everybody looks like Darth Vader to us instead of possibly just a friend, yeah. a person who could be a friend in another life. It's a really toxic situation that we're in. And I don't think that there's a magic wand way out. Twitter's not going to go away mm -hmm. unless Donald Trump comes back to power and bans it, <laughs> which he might just do out of spite. Mm -hmm. We have to work on ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and absent some sort of religious revolution, I would settle for Star Wars as a, as a better way to think about the world. I would. I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past, but I, I think that um, one of the issues that we currently have in our culture, and I say this as a secular individual, is that we haven't really quit being religious. We've just shifted that religious impulse to politics, and I think it would be far healthier to shift that to Star Wars or Star Trek because you get all the same mythology, you get all the archetypes, you get to have these wonderful morality tales, but it's not predicated on defeating somebody. And you point out, or I should say in the foreword of the book, um, you talk about how you can love Star Wars and you can love Star Trek. It's, it's, it's pluralistic. You don't have to pick a side to hate. 
Well, I don't believe in that. I think that's actually pretty sick to love Star Wars and Star Trek, and I think that you should be deported. Well, so. I'm, I'm, then, I, then I'm some kind of scientific uh, sci-fi <laughs> When I, when I was in high school, I did, a, I did a Star Wars fan film with my friends where it was like a, a council of Jedi kids in some local, local town, and then they were just waging war on Harry Potter fans and Star Trek fans and X-Men fans, and they might have all been killed in the end. So uh, there is holy war to be had. I, I would love to see this video <laughs> from your sci-fi high school pubescent jihad period. You'll have to steal my external hard yeah. drive. You'll never get it. Well, I, to, to go back to, the, to, to Twitter that you brought up, one of the points that you brought up in the book that had not occurred to me, uh, I mean, I've, I've thought a lot, I think a lot of us have spent time thinking about the effect of social media on public discourse, and it, it tends to be a conversation rooted around the algorithms bumping up, you know, the negative and so on and so forth. You assert that it's not so much that social media in and of itself is combative, but rather that it's just distracting and that oh, yeah. it limits the amount of available bandwidth you've got, and that dehumanizes people. Yeah, it's it's in the chapter on empathy, and it's it's kind of building off of the idea that the bad guys in Star Wars wear masks, and particularly like in The Force Awakens, everybody wears masks in that movie. The movie starts with Kylo Ren, masked, Rey, the hero of the movie, also begins the movie masked. Then you have Finn, the rogue stormtrooper, begins masked. And then over the course of the movie, they are all removing those masks and revealing who they really are. And I zeroed in on that as the lesson in empathy. Why is it that Luke has to learn that Darth Vader is not more machine than man? He's actually his father. He's actually a person. He used to be this guy named Anakin Skywalker. And why is it that Rey is surprised when Kylo Ren takes his mask off? She calls him a creature in a mask, and he's actually just a cute boy. Uh, and that, that lesson right there in empathy, in realizing that sometimes the people who scare you most are just, in fact, scared humans themselves yeah. who are posturing or putting on an act, that's incredibly valuable. And it's not so much, like you said, that Twitter is feeding us like lies and algorithms it's just that we only have so much emotional bandwidth to give people. Mm -hmm. And I looked into this and studies on why empathy has been known to decline in students at like Penn State University. It's in the chapter. Yeah, the lowest yeah, EQ school there is. The worst one. State. Decade over decade, they've been measuring students' cognitive empathy. And it's been declining. And they looked into this and tried to understand why. And it wasn't that people are just like, oh, you know, people are, are more dehumanizing every, every decade over decade. It's that we're just distracted. Every notification that you get, every text that you get, all those thousands of unanswered emails, they take up space in your mind and in your heart. And when you have someone on your phone telling you that like you're overdue on your bills and you're walking past a homeless person on the street, mm. it's harder to make eye contact with that person because you've got problems. And as a capitalist, a free market guy myself, I struggled with understanding this and to try to grapple with it, but just like the rat race of society, it does keep us from being able to reach out hands to others sometimes when we're constantly concerned about ourselves. And one of the things you've got in the book is every chapter concludes with actionable steps that you can do to try and improve yourself. Um, like with with technology, you could turn off some of the, I, I've turned off notifications on Facebook and yep. Friender 
so that I'm not getting constantly pinged by those and can focus more on the people around me. Turn it off. I, I take Twitter off of my phone, so I, I use it when I got my laptop out, but I, I'm not going to be subject to ding, 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 ding mm-hmm. all day. I have responsibilities and like people to care for that actually love me in a real way, and I need to devote my emotional bandwidth to those people yeah. because those are relationships I can control. I can control if I have a good relationship with my wife and with my child sometimes, uh, and I cannot control if people on Twitter like me. And people spend so much time trying to make people on Twitter like them. Right, which I, this, this is a thing, like I, I, have the, I have an intervention with multiple friends regularly where yeah. I'm like, you just spent three and a half hours of your day arguing with a stranger who is almost certainly sitting on the toilet at this very moment and will never meet you in real life. Yeah. And you could have been learning guitar or talking to your wife or your mistress. You could have been bonding with all these people that you care <laughs> with about. your mistress. And instead, you spent it talking to this idiot here. You could have had a very fulfilling affair. Yes, exactly. You're exactly. You, like, yeah, you're putting in, <laughs> all your social capital is being squandered. Um, well, I'll tell you, one of the other things that, that uh, I've thought about in your book that I hadn't really considered before uh, is the redemptive arc that's happening. Now, I, I realize that there's a redemptive arc with Vader. I already knew about that. But you bring up the fact that um, he he becomes a force ghost. Vader becomes a force ghost. Um, yeah. Presumably, Kylo Ren does. I don't think we've seen him as a Force Ghost, we but we do see him no. disappear. Yeah. So, so a la uh, uh, Obi Wan and Yoda, we can infer he's probably a Force Ghost. A lot of people feel that that is unjust because these characters have not um, undone all of the horrible things they've done, and so they shouldn't be in Jedi heaven. Uh, but but you stipulate that there's kind of a different theology at work in this. What is that? Yeah. So I I've been going to comic cons and and Star Wars conventions for as long as I can remember. Yeah. When I was younger, I never remember going to a Star Wars panel and hearing people talk about, you know, redemption in Star Wars and Darth Vader, you know, becoming one with the Force and people, like, raising issue with that. They do now. I've been to these conferences and fans, you know, of the left persuasion particularly, they take issue with it and they want to litigate, like, why is it that Star Wars has this message that, like, space Nazis get to go to space heaven when there haven't been reparations made and there hasn't been a tribunal? Right, that it was unjust that Darth Vader didn't stand trial for his crimes against the galaxy, that he gets to go and be one with the Force and be happy. And Star Wars doesn't derive from what we consider to be redemption, right? You're a religious studies guy. You you understand that like in the Judeo-Christian philosophy, redemption is paying a debt. And it's sometimes a debt that you cannot pay. Human sin and our, our wrongness is paid for in the Christian faith by Christ. He pays the debt that cannot be paid. Um, you know, in the in the Jewish sense, strictly, like it is sort of like you like balancing that scale, kind of what you put in versus what you have taken out of the world. Star Wars goes in a different direction, and redemption, as explained in the Clone Wars animated series, this is going way down the rabbit. Which, but I've not watched yeah. Clone Wars, but I hear nothing but good things about Clone Wars. That the writing in it is superb. If, it fills in all these gaps. Yeah. It all it's it's almost like a like a fun cliff notes to everything else. The Clone Wars is crucial if you want to fill in the gaps to how all of Star Wars really makes sense. And one of the things that they delve into is how people become Force ghosts. And also why? Because it actually, it's brand new. It's not like centuries of Jedi become those hazy... Qui-Gon's the first. Yeah, Qui-Gon was the first one to ever do it. He wasn't able to physically manifest, but other ones did perfect it. Yoda studied the skill in the Clone Wars, and it comes only from being able to duel and know your shadow self. So he Mm. goes into like this ethereal realm where he faces Dark Yoda. And the challenge is to face Dark Yoda, your dark self, 
and not view it as an alien, as a thing that is other than you. You're supposed to look at your darkness and go, that is equally me. I am also this person, but Mm. I choose not to feed it. I choose not to be that person. And when you've accepted your darkness as an equal part of you, only then can you possibly move forward. People like Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, they've been dark. They know they're evil and they know what they're capable of, and then they choose to walk away from it. Sith don't usually do that. They live and die in that ideology, and it's sad. Which, and I I think this is one of the powerful concepts that underlies Star Wars. Uh, Ben Dominich mentions in the foreword to your book, he he quotes the Gulag Archipelago, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but basically um, the author asserts that the line between good and evil is not a line between teams, but rather a line that runs through the human heart, and that if you're trapped in that worldview of, if only I could get rid of the bad guys, we would fix everything, you have to eventually come to terms with the fact that you yourself have bad guy in you, and, and if you don't think you do, you're going to be up, you're, you're going to be blind to all of these horrors that you might rot. Yeah, and I don't want to like cheapen something you know as powerful as that idea which you just said, but like cancel culture, right? Like everybody's talking about this idea that there is no forgiveness in society anymore, that there is always people waiting for you in some sort of online mob to cancel you, ruin your life, and drag up mistakes from your past. And you just have to wonder, and I think we've seen this a couple of times with different cancel campaigns, eventually the cancelers become the canceled because when they go on this witch hunt, then someone goes, you know what, I actually just found this tweet from you in 2014. And then they hit themselves with nine tails, apologize, apologize, but there is no apology that's going to be accepted. We all have lost sight. And I think like, it's like, I call it like putting the Instagram filter over our life that we are also fallen people, that we have mistakes uh, in our past, but we're able to hide them online. And we're able to build social capital by tearing other people down and building ourselves up only until they come after us. And for me, like I, I looked at the cancel culture problem and tried to delve into Star Wars deeper than I think is possibly reasonable. And I I found that answer and I was like, that's it. Like the answer to redemption in our society is remembering that we are fallen. And in a secular society, it is hard to remind people of that because when you don't have a God to look up to, you become God, people become God. And if you don't have a, a gates of heaven to get through, it's going to be the gates of man that we put together on this world, and that's a problem for us. Yeah, I, I, I hold back on that. I, I, uh, you, you bring up the parable of Jesus and throwing the first stone and that kind of thing, and I, I did stuff I'm not proud of back in the 90s. I, I said some things, and I also owned slaves, and I regret all that now. <laughs> um, and so for that reason, I don't, you know, I don't throw rocks because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, Actually, I, I want to uh, I, I ask you as well, you spent a lot of time in the book talking about fear. I mean, yeah. there's the, the Yoda quote of, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hatred. Uh, and you, you draw this through line. Um, so talk about that. How, how can Star Wars help us address fear and what happens when we're gripped by fear? Well, what happens when we're gripped by fear is what Yoda lays out very clearly in episode one. Fear leads to anger, leads to hate, leads to suffering. Fear is anxiety and an inability to let go. One of the things that I delve into in the book is I, I try to like COVID-19 is the, the big specter in the room right now as well as writing this book. We're in the middle of a pandemic. 
people are dying, people are getting sick, and people want. Wait, to so you avoid you, that. you spent your COVID being productive and writing a book? I did. Yeah, I mean, it was. It I, was I mostly uh, ate Oreos in a bathtub. That's I think what I did for all of 2020. <laughs> I, I congratulate you on being so you, industrious. You stimulated the economy. That's right. Is what you did. You're welcome. I uh, I just tried to to zero in on more actionable things in people's lives that were not like the elephant in the room. So. The war on terror, the idea that if you wage a war on terror, you're going to be able to be unafraid. Like there was this idea in the post 9-11 world that we were never going to be in that situation again. We were never going to be victimized like this again or be afraid. But if you go through the TSA checkpoint at the airport, is that an action of courage? To go through all of that, to put yourself through a scanner and be patted down and violated by a bureaucrat uh, with little plastic gloves, is that what brave people do or is that what people who are mortified about the things that could happen to them in the world doing? I, that's for me, like it's the paradox of, of just wanting to be free of fear, but then giving our lives over to control freaks who are going to put us in little padded rooms and in little bubble wrapped suits and say, great, now you don't have anything to be afraid of. And I don't want to like go down the, the wormhole of the, the pandemic too much, but like you've got to learn to let go a little bit and get back to life when there are things that are outside of your control. I zero in mostly on parenting in the book and like mm -hmm. letting your kids roam the neighborhood uh, without adult supervision from time to time. You probably know this as a reason guy. There are lots of states in the country where you can be uh, reported to social services and have your kids taken away from you if they are found outside of your site. Yeah. Maryland dealt with this uh, a couple of years ago. There were some kids walking to a neighborhood park in their neighborhood. And they were found by a neighbor, called the police, and the parents ended up having to go to court to make sure that they didn't lose their kids. And Maryland has since passed a law, a free-range parenting law, to allow people to do that without legal uh, repercussions. That's a huge problem. Like the days of stranger things are long gone, where kids just get on bikes right. and go out and, and are unsupervised. Yeah, my, my parents would just give me a bike and a knife. Have fun. Yeah, be gone watch, for watch out for Ted Bundy. Yeah, like, come back, come back around dark. Yeah, and that's like that's where it all comes from. It's like the 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 age of the serial killer, the seventies and uh, and eighties. It just completely remodeled our relationship to reasonable fear as parents, uh, and people started wanting their kids to be supervised all the time. Don't leave home. Uh, and also make sure you're always traveling in packs, right? Yeah. That's generally safe. But it is also true that that time is past and that the chances of being picked up by a kidnapper or serial killer in a yeah. very developed country uh, are incredibly minute, almost insignificant. I, I think this is a great example of where relying on logic and reason instead of intuition is good. Like, I don't, your parents are probably baby boomers. My, yes. Mine are. Yeah. And so I, we, we grew up with a lot of baby boomers. And yeah. a conversation I have all the time is, you know, back in the 50s, we weren't worried about crime. And I'm like, right, because you were eight years old. <laughs> I was born in the 80s. I wasn't worried about the housing market. I wasn't like seven years old, like worried yeah. that Carter would come back and interest. Like that, you don't worry about things when you're a child. We tend to um, overly emphasize the period we grew up in rather than actually thinking about the, the data and the statistics. But I, I'm glad that you brought up kids because you do, you have parenting advice peppered throughout the book. Uh, now, in my case, I have no acknowledged children, but you do. Uh, so where where are some instances where you found Star Wars to aid you as a father? I I think for me I, I might go back to the question of hope. So 
early in the pandemic, oh gosh, I say early because it's been like two years now. So we're looking at Christmas of 2020, uh, 2021. Uh, no, we're not at Christmas of, yeah, 2020, excuse me. I've lost my track of time. You know, my, my daughter was just feeling despair over how long the pandemic had been going on. Which, I mean, kid years you know. is like nine years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a long time, yeah. you know, at, at that point in time. And I asked her foolishly, uh, honey, are you excited about the new year going into 2021? And she said no and burst into tears because there was still no sight of school coming back. There was still no sight of being able to go to the grocery store without masks. Uh, all of it just seemed hopeless. And in those moments as a parent, you know, my mom was a, a is a very biblical person. And she is the type of person who I envy. She can draw on a Bible verse pretty quickly and, and give me something to hold on to. I'm not that person. Uh, I've never been able to go to the great texts and bring it out, but I can pull it out of Star Wars very quickly. Mm -hmm. And what came to me was in The Last Jedi, it said that Leia is known to say, hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it, you'll never make it through the night. And that helped, that stopped the crying, that goes to a hug, right? My daughter loves Star Wars as much as I do. And I love that line because the meaning of that is not that you believe foolishly or naively that there's reason to be hopeful, that like, you know, maybe one day things will be okay. It's a reminder that hope is like the sun. The sun, unless it explodes, is not going anywhere. You just might not see it. If it is covered, it's always up by storm revolving clouds, around the earth and doing its weird thing. It's out of sight, but it's going to come into sight. The storm clouds are going to clear, and what gets you out of bed in the morning is knowing that it is there. You just need to find it. In those moments in pandemic times, I, I have to hold on to that. In the times where populism are surging on the left and the right, and politics is just getting awful, I believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm gonna find it. <laughs> I'm going to keep searching for it. And like this book is just about, you know, how Star Wars is this tale where evil is constantly ascendant. You know, darkness rises and light to meet it. There's always this push and pull. If people give up and believe that there is no hope, you got to know that the, the scale is going to swing back. The mm. pendulum is going to swing back, but you need to be part of it. Mm. Well, we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, that line because that's from the latest film or li li the latest installment. Yeah, latest trilogy, films. yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's there's all this. When I was growing up, there was a ton of rancor towards the prequels, which I don't think are as much fun as the the I don't know, episodes three through five. Yeah. But um, you you quote Cass Sunstein a couple times in the book, who's a huge Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. I think he makes a great point that the prequels are about the rise and fall and hubris of institutions, and for that reason, are valuable. Um, and uh, a lot of people hate the most recent three. I think you didn't like the last one, but you liked That's the correct. first two. So. What, uh, for anybody that, that hates on bits of Star Wars, what would you tell them? Well, I mean, uh, like about... Say, I, I hate Jar Jar Binks, and I hate the prequels, and I hate the last three. I only like The Empire Strikes Back. What do you tell me? Well, I, I tell you that that's completely fine. You know, like, if you absolutely love The Empire Strikes Back and nothing else resonated with you, 
it's no skin off my back. I mean, that's great. I just want you to be happy. Mm-hmm. I remember. How being... dare you with that that burst of pluralism <laughs> and the idea that in our society people can be in error and yet continue to be friends and work with each no, other. It's... We all have to believe the same thing, Stephen, and you must be broken beneath the wheel if you don't. And that's the thing. Like I grew up. You and I both grew up in the prequel days when episodes one, two, and three were coming out. We were kids, you know. Like these movies were were fun. They were pretty simple. Jar Jar Binks did not offend nine year olds of of most persuasions um, but just people cannot like resist the ability to make things all about them all the time and I remember dealing with like Gen X fans at that time who just wanted to dunk on these movies and on the fact that I for the first time wanted a Star Wars lightsaber like I was now a big fan and that wasn't good enough for these older fans because only their Star Wars yeah. was the real thing and it made me sad and it made fandom hard I'm not a huge fan of the Disney trilogy, but I always remember when I sit in the theater and particularly with my daughter, um, this movie is first and foremost for them. And if the kids are coming out and they're like, man, I want to buy a Kylo Ren costume or man, I want to be Rey for Halloween, then Star Wars is, is working. It's doing what it needs to do for future generations to then learn this great story. I think that we have a problem in our culture with not growing up and realizing that as masters, we have to take on Padawans and we have to share what we have learned. And eventually it's not all about us anymore. That being said, don't make bad movies. You should make movies for everybody. Like The Mandalorian is a TV show. Great show. Great example of how you can do Star Wars for everyone and have it not suck. Um, But at the end of the day, I think there's a little bit of a culture of responsibility um, vanishing uh, in our our society. And I want to try to Use this book to help people remember the importance of Star Wars, which is you got to take that lightsaber and pass it down to the next person and say, good luck, do good things. And if you need a manual to pass on that lightsaber to somebody else, might I commend to you How the Force Can Fix the World by Stephen Kent. Stephen, thank you for writing a wonderful book, and thank you for coming on my show. It was a pleasure. <laughs> I look forward to being back with you, Andrew. Absolutely, absolutely. That's it for this episode of Right Now. I'm reluctantly Andrew Heaton. Pending exoneration, your regular host Stephen Kent will return next time to interview Carolyn Brasenko and hopefully talk about Star Wars some more. In the meantime, keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system.